My dad, who many of you know, uh, went home to be with the Lord in 2018. He's currently a resident in the heavenly city. Um, During the time of his uh, sojourning here, he not only had a, um, a number of great qualities, but he also had a lot of great abilities as well. Uh, I remember many people telling me during his life and then during the, the days of remembering him at the funeral um, that he was um, arguably, they didn't say arguably, uh, the greatest um, excavator that they had ever seen, the way he could operate a machine. Um, he was just good at a lot of things. Like he could, he could throw a football. He was great at sports. Um, some of you might be interested to know that we used to play pool ball as a kid uh, and, and as adults. Um, we would play pool ball, this kind of around-the-world basketball game in the pool, and uh, my dad holds the record, still holds the record to this day. Zach and I have not beaten the record for how many times he was able to go around the pool making shots. Um, he could make food. He was excellent at preparing food. He could do a lot of things really well. But one of the things you might not know about him, some of those things you might have known, um, was that he was a skilled artist. My dad can draw, you know, he, he was able to draw very, very well. One of the highlights for me as a kid would be those times where he would sit down at the kitchen table and I would get some cartoon character that I'd want him to draw and I'd bring it over to him and then I'd watch him draw it. And it was just amazing to me because I, I loved to draw as a kid. I loved cartoons and loved to do those things, but I couldn't do what he did and he did it with just excellence and skill. And if you've ever watched somebody draw, you ever watched an artist at work, you know that probably sometime, I'm going to throw out a number, I don't know if this is exact, halfway into the process, you can make out what they're drawing. You can see it. But if you keep watching it through, whether it's you've been watching, you've watched somebody on TV years back, or somebody that you love and you've watched them draw something, you know that even though you can make out what they're drawing, probably midpoint, maybe a little bit before, as they continue to sketch, as they continue to draw, the details get filled in more and more And it's as though you see the image, as it were, kind of come to life, begins to pop as colors are added, as shadow is added, as more details are added, and so on. I get a sense of that when I read through Jude's epistle, as he describes to us what the apostates are like. Jude, as I read through this, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to me, he kind of, in a sense, weaves together an epistle like a literary artist, using triads, using metaphors, using Old Testament references. And early on, you can get the picture that he's painting. You can see the composite to a degree that he's sketching. But as the epistle goes on, with this spirit-led skillfulness, drawing from Old Testament texts, drawing from things that people would be aware of at the time, drawing from metaphors, using triads, it's as though he's painting and he's painting and the picture is becoming more and more clear. I think this epistle is amazingly, it's the word of God, so we shouldn't be surprised about this, amazingly edifying and awe-provoking. Now, if we were to liken this epistle to a canvas, um, the primary portion of this canvas is dedicated, or at least a primary portion, is dedicated to depicting the apostate. It's not the entirety of the epistle. Hold on. Jude was going to explain how we contend for the faith. We're going to see that a little bit later on. There's, there's still more details to come. But a primary portion of this epistle is given to depicting the apostate. And why that matters is so Christians can understand what apostates look like. And then you would say secondarily, probably implicitly, so that we might not look like them. Now, what has Jude sketched so far? Well, a little, a little bit of a brief summary would go like this. If you look in verse 4, you see that the apostate, the one who falls away from the truth, whether they're in a teaching position or not, one who goes astray, 
at least in Jude's day, and oftentimes it's the same way in our day, they turn the grace of God into a license for sin. They turn the grace of God into lewdness, a license for licentiousness. They deny the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe with words, undoubtedly with actions. To use language from Paul's epistle to Titus, they profess to know God, but with their actions they deny Him. So that's a mark of an apostate. Jude goes on, and we saw already in verses 5 through 7 that the outcome of apostasy, of departing from the truth, of going from you know, looking like you're on the narrow way to going down the broad way, what that ends up in is it ends up in judgment. We saw that via the examples that he gave. Even as the case was with Israel in the wilderness, verse 5. Even as it was the case with the angels who left their proper domain, verse 6. Even as was the case with Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them that were judged, verse 7. They are described as dreamers. You go on and you see that. So that may be depicting not only the fact that perhaps they alluded to or based some of their erroneous assertions on dreams that they had, as though their own dreams were divine justification, were kind of divine justification for the false doctrine that they taught. But it might also speak to their sinful fantasies. They were dreamers and so on. They reject authority. That's a mark of an apostate. They are a law unto themselves. They want to be the authority. They are not under authority. We see that they even speak evil about angelic beings that they don't know or understand. They speak evil about the celestial world. You go to verse 10, we find they are like sinking ships with loose lips. They speak evil of whatever they do not know. They have unrestrained speech, irreverent speech, unrestrained speech. We see that what they do know, they know like brute beasts. In other words, they give themselves over to their carnal appetites. They have this propensity to corrupt themselves in what was likely their supposed expressions of liberty. Then we see that they stand on the shoulders of men like Cain, Balaam, and Korah. As I was thinking about this message, I, I wrote, I said, imagine what the apostate's pitch would be at a ministry fair, provided they had to be honest. Now, you might remember some years back, we had that kind of thing, a little bit of a ministry fair, and what that would be, and when churches do that kind of thing, it's oftentimes where there'll be, like in a fellowship hall, different tables set up to let people know in the church what ministry opportunities there are. And there might be a person who's responsible for that ministry, explaining what the ministry is like, what the responsibilities are. That's what a ministry fair is, at least in some places. Well, imagine if the apostates were at a ministry fair, and they had to speak very honestly about what they were pitching to you. Imagine, this is what I did anyway, imagine they had a pitcher on their table. It's not like a pitcher that Mike Diaz gave me some years back. Mike Diaz gave me a great pitcher. His uh, 500 years of the Reformation pitcher had John Calvin, Martin Luther, uh, William Tyndale, and John Knox on it. Awesome pitcher. But their pitcher wouldn't be like that. Their pitcher would have something like Cain, who killed his brother, Balaam, who ran after prophet, Korah, who led a rebellion and perished in the rebellion. If you were to look in the back of the picture, you'd probably find like a lot of corpses representing Israel in the wilderness. Maybe you'd see chains representing the chains that those angels are in as they are reserved for the day of judgment. You'd see things like that. And you'd probably, if you just looked at the picture at this ministry fair with the apostates behind the table, you'd say, no thanks. But knowing the apostates, they would probably be glad to make their pitch. They like to talk. 
And they are used to pitching things. They're used to pontificating. So they might say something like this. Hey, do you want to serve with us? And if they had to tell the truth, they would do this. Do you want to serve with us? I mean, it's a great opportunity to use the doctrine of grace as an excuse for sin. You could do that if you serve alongside with us. We use freedom as a guise for corruption and moral decomposition. And you may make some money along the way. For a lot of our guys, it works out that way. For some, you know, the good old sow your seed now while the anointing is flowing thing seems to be working well. If you've had religious TV on for a decent amount of time, you've probably seen somebody who has not only told you to sow a seed, but probably to, to close the deal rather quickly, they tell you do it now while the anointing is flowing. Then, as they keep telling you, they say, but the fine print is, in the end, you'll perish in the rebellion of Korah and you'll suffer the vengeance of eternal fire. That's like what a pitch would look like from apostates. And remember where they're found in Jude's epistle. They're not found on the outside trying to get in. They're found on the inside. They're in the inside of the local church. So if they were going to be honest, that's essentially what they would say. That's the sketch. That's the honest pitch, or at least what it would be, I would think, in my mind, to some degree. But Jude will provide more details still. That's a sketch of what we've seen so far, an abbreviated form of it. And it's important that we understand what these ones look like so that we might recognize them and also so that we might not imitate them, right? The behavior of saints is not to be that of the apostate. You might say the saint, right? The one who's made holy, been set apart by the grace of God. That's what a saint is, by the way, right? Somebody who's been made holy by God, separated by God, for God, by the grace of God. The saint is the anti-apostate. And so should the behavior um, contradict the behavior of apostates. Well, Jude is going to fill in the sketch more. We begin in Jude verses 12 and 13 where we read, These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So here we see a series of metaphors. And in these metaphors, we also see connoted the effects that such ones can have on others. So you have metaphors that are describing the apostate and connoted in these depictions, at least to some degree, are the effects that they could have on other, others. Jude begins by saying, these are uh, two words in the Greek that kind of provide a familiar pattern when he's speaking about these apostates. We've seen it before. We're going to see it again. These are. Who are these? It's those who stand on the shoulders of Cain and Balaam and Korah. It's the apostates. It's those who crept in unawares and turned the grace of God into lewdness and so on. These are. Well, he begins by saying, these are spots in your love feasts. Spots in your love feasts. Now, the Greek word that's used here is only used once in the New Testament. It's used here uh, with, with regards to spots. Now, the word for spots could also be rendered as, and arguably is better rendered as, hidden reefs, meaning those shallow, rocky portions uh, of water, or at least under the water, in, upon which a ship could shipwreck. That's what's being described here, I think. Were they blemishes? Were they spots? In the love feast, 
If you were to liken blemishes to, you know, say, an ink stain on a beautiful white dress or something like that, were they that? Yes, they were that. Peter uses that kind of language rather explicitly. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, he says, they are spots and blemishes. Peter used a different word. Peter used the word spelos as opposed to spelos. Like, well, it, sounds, it sounds the same. Hence why I think a lot of translations will go with spots here, because it seems to be the same. If you were to, um, if you were to differentiate the two, it's a difference between a vowel, an omicron, and an alpha. So he appears to be speaking of here in Jude, he appears to be speaking of reefs. Whatever the nuance is that's intended, while Christian love feasts, and I'll explain what those are in a moment, they were to be intended as beautiful occasions. But these individuals were like dangerous traps amidst what was meant to be a familial safe harbor. So the love feast is supposed to be this familial safe harbor where the people of God are gathering together, eating together, encouraging one another, building up one another. It's supposed to be a safe place, a familial place, a place of building up and edification and encouragement in Christ and in the things of God. And they're like hidden reefs. They they are like those dangerous traps, as it were, upon which ships could shipwreck. That's what they were like. Now, love feasts are what we know as Agape meals. Agape meals. Um, they were appropriately titled as that, seeing as love was, to use language from one commentator, the ethical characteristic that marked the early Christian feasts. So this love feast, so why was it called a love feast? Because the early gathering of Christians together, their eating together, was to be marked by love, even as Jesus' disciples were to be preeminently marked by love and love for one another. So it was a time of love as Christians communed together and they feasted. And by feasted, that doesn't mean like they gorged themselves on food until nobody could eat anymore. That's not what's implied there in the language. It just means essentially that they ate together. They ate food together. That's what these meals were. They were akin to what we might call today um, potluck meals. Um, We would think that in the early church, it wasn't like, you know, they went to like the local caterer. Nothing wrong with doing that, by the way. But the idea would be most likely would be that they would all bring food, at least those who could, those who were in positions to bring food, uh, those who had resources more than, say, those who were poor Christians would bring food, and then they would eat meals together. Whoever could, whoever was able would bring it and be shared among the Christians that gathered. When we look in 1 Corinthians 11, that's where we get the idea that Christians celebrated the Lord's table within the context of an agape meal. So there would be the celebrating of the Lord's Supper adjoined to part of the agape meal. So again, as I've said, this was a time where Christian love was to be exhibited. However, not surprisingly, the character of these apostates manifested itself even in the love feasts as they exercised self-love. Look again at verse 12. While they feast with you without fear, Serving only themselves. So looking at the latter part of that expression for the moment. Serving only themselves. So they feasted, right? So in other words, i.e. they ate with other believers. They sat down. They were a part of the meal. But for them, the love feast was more of a self-love feast. A self-love feast. It's as though they sung the line of the old song, You were always on my mind while imagining themselves. 
<laughs> You're always on my mind. And they lived it out. And they lived it out. Um, now let's be reminded, because we're talking about the apostates, and then we can think of this, this brand of individual that is completely far and distant from us, as though he's about like 2,000 years away in the days of Jude, and has no possibility of rearing his or her ugly head within an assembly like ours today. And I think we do well to remember that the apostates even showed up, or at least apostate-like behavior showed up, amidst the Lord's table in the church of Corinth. Remember that Paul talked about the Corinthians, that when they celebrated the Lord's table, he says, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Well, you don't have to be an apostate to act like an apostate, at least for a moment, because the apostates were those who were serving only themselves. And Paul's talking about those in Corinth who are coming to the Lord's table and they're just going ahead of others. They're eating. Some are just gorging themselves and becoming drunk and wine and so on. It's a good reminder that you don't have to be an apostate to behave like an apostate. But you don't want to keep behaving like an apostate unless you are one and thus manifest yourself to be one. By God's grace may not be so among us. Now, to apply the matter to some contemporary contexts, if I were to think of these individuals um, serving only themselves, that's kind of the behavior of, of, of them and what they would do. Um, I, I don't, by God's grace, think that that kind of thing would happen with us as we go back to agape meals. I don't esteem that to happen among us. I could imagine with some of the culinary giftedness in this church, I'll just use one example, for instance. Like, there are a bunch of people in this church that can make empanadas, and they could do them really well. And I could imagine you, I can imagine myself, being tempted to say, you know, firsts are good, seconds are better, thirds and fourths are appropriate. But you want to you be thinking in your mind, and even as we get back to that kind of context, even as we celebrate together, we want to be thinking in our minds, we don't want to serve ourselves, at least not primarily. We want to prefer others above ourselves. We want to serve others above ourselves, prefer others above ourselves. Preferring self above others is the way of apostates. Preferring others above ourselves is the way of the Christian. Now, second, notice that they feasted without fear. They feasted without fear. Now, most immediately, what comes to my mind is that, in other words, given the kind of lives that they were living, given that they were living lives in rebellion against God, that they were duplicitous, and even in the midst of the agape meal, they were spots or they were hidden reefs, so they were up to no good, even as they were fellowshipping with the people of God, you would think that they would have some measure of pangs of conscience. They'd have some measure of fear, like, what am I doing? I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be thinking like this. I shouldn't be behaving like this. But no. No fear. No pangs of conscience. Likely, a seared conscience. And that is a scary place to be. No fear. No fear of God. They were like hitmen who could take care of business and then go meet their family at a restaurant for a nice meal and not even think about what they did. No pangs of conscience. What also might be implied in this language is not only that they had no fear in the sense of no pangs of conscience, but no fear in the sense of no fear of God, no reverence. Just no reverence towards God whatsoever. You could be in the midst of an agape meal with people that Christ purchased with his own blood, celebrating the Lord's table, remembering that sacred event where Jesus Christ laid his life down for us, and it doesn't even make you bat an eye. You go about your business. You have an agenda. And apostates, when they're in local assemblies, make no mistake, they have an agenda. In some cases, they want to gather disciples to themselves. 
In other cases, they want to impress with knowledge. In some cases, they're looking for you to help them and give them money in one way or another because we know that apostates love money. They have an agenda, and we need to be aware of that. Any level of a seared conscience is frightening, and the kind described here is particularly disconcerting. No reverence towards God, no fear of God. They had an agenda, and they sought to live it out without even thinking twice about it. And thirdly, we look at the language here. The words translated as serving only themselves could be rendered as shepherding themselves. Shepherding themselves. Now, assuming, as I think the evidence in the epistle does, that at least some of these apostates were in teaching positions, the irony is connoted, the irony of their behavior is connoted in that phrase. So, serving only themselves could be rendered as shepherding themselves. They are like those in Ezekiel's day that Ezekiel described in Ezekiel 34, verse 1. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? So, rather than feeding faithfully or serving lovingly, these false shepherds, they fleeced covetously and they shepherd shepherded only themselves, and they did so selfishly. Now, as Jude continues, he provides powerful metaphors for what these apostates are like. First, he wrote, They are like clouds without water, carried about by the winds. So you and I must see this metaphor through the eyes of an agrarian society. When clouds were on the way, you were thinking, Okay, good, clouds are coming. Clouds are going to bring forth rain. The ground needs rain. If this crop is going to come, we need rain. But these guys were like clouds without rain. They don't bring the rain that waters the ground, metaphorically speaking, so as to produce fruit. They looked like they ought to have, but they didn't. Clouds without water, especially in an agrarian society, when you're in need of water to water the ground, to water the trees and so on, Clouds without water don't do what you expect them to do, what you hope them to do. As an aside, and this is just a little bit of an aside, they block out the sunlight as well. They didn't bring the good they ought to have brought, and they reflected, they obstructed the light they ought to have reflected. Their promises, when you look at 2 Peter, you can see that when Peter's talking about such individuals, he talks about them as promising freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. So they would promise things. They're like clouds without water. They're promising freedom. You follow me, you'll be free. How free? You'll be financially free. You'll be free of sickness. You'll be free of water. I don't know exactly what these apostates of that day said, but I know there's a lot of people going around today saying, you follow me, you do what I tell you to do, you apply the methodology I'm telling you to apply, you will be free. They promise freedom while they themselves are enslaved to corruption. They promise they can't fulfill those promises. They can't make good on them. Those under them, like ground under the waterless clouds, become dry and barren. Furthermore, Jude described these waterless clouds as carried about by the winds. Carried about by the winds. A lot of times when I'll wake up in the morning, I'll just kind of open the shade, kind of pull it right by the window, so I just pull the shade, goes up. I'm like, okay, now regulate the circadian rhythm and so on. And I look out the window, and right out the window, I could see the clouds yesterday just, just moving. 
just, just moving, like, wow, there they are. And I'm like, is it just my mind? Can you ever look at the clouds and you're like, are they moving or is it just me? Am I imagining them moving? So I'm like, I'm following one particular cloud and I'm like, okay, no, that cloud's moving. And this is probably too much diagnostics. Like, you should just be able to observe and know what's going on. But I wanted to make sure, and it's an interesting thing when you watch clouds and they are just carried about by the winds. It's, a, it's in contrast, you might say, to a tree which is rooted in the ground. Think of Psalm chapter 1, right? The blessed man. He's got roots that go down deep. He's watered by rivers and so on. He's supplied with water by accompanying streams that are nearby. Clouds are not like that. They just drift. The language is reminiscent of how the Apostle Paul told Christians not to be. That we are not to be carried about by every wind of doctrine. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. So not being rooted and grounded in the truth, these ones, these apostates, they easily drift. They're carried about from one doctrinal fad to another. And those who follow them, by the way, are often attracted to such novelty, suffering from a case of what can be called the Athenian itch. The Athenian itch is found in Acts 17, verse 21 where we read, For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. To hear some new thing. Perhaps Jude is also noting how the apostates were acted upon from the outside by unseen forces, to use language from one commentator. I don't think that's out of the realm of likelihood at all when you look at the scriptures in the New Testament. You see that John in 1 John chapter 4 notes how spirits, evil spirits, are behind false prophets. 1 John chapter 4 verse 1. You look in Paul's writing in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1, Paul spoke of those who depart from the faith, that would be an apostate, as those who give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. The apostates then are like clouds carried about by the winds. And the winds could well represent not only to just speak to use language from James, they're carried about by their own evil desires, right? When somebody sins, they're carried about by their own evil desires, but they can also be carried about by seducing spirits and doctrines of demons and so on. So the winds can well represent those things that are inciting these individuals to their own deception. And I mentioned this last week, and I just want to say this again, because I know that there will be some. This is a popular phrase. It's been around for years. Uh, I've been a Christian since 2001. And you'll hear the phrase a lot of times, well, I'll chew the meat and I'll spit out the bones. And I've told you before, I said it, I said it last week, I said, what seems to be meat is not actually meat. It's actually a toxic fake substitute. But when you see who these individuals are, you see what they're like, see how God describes them. They're, they're, they're clouds without water. They're carried about by the winds. They're serving only themselves. I would encourage you to stay away from chewing on whatever they're dispensing. Whatever they're dispensing. We'll get into some more of the specifics. I got into some specifics last week. Lord willing, next week a little bit more. Uh, but now we move on to the next metaphor. The next metaphor Jude wrote, that these apostates were like late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the root. Okay, so vivid imagery here. Jude, carried along by the Holy Spirit, masterfully using language to communicate images here. He describes them as late autumn trees. Late autumn trees would be those trees that are basically the last chance to bring forth fruit. You're saying if fruit is going to come from this tree, it's got to be now. It's late autumn. If it doesn't come now, it's not coming. So they are late autumn trees And again, the idea of failed expectations is connoted. You'd expect something 
from them, given who they proclaimed themselves to be, but they didn't meet those expectations. By the time late autumn came around, one commentator referenced the Julian calendar and listed that as from August 10th to November 10th, um, fruit should have been born. These men, however, did not produce fruit when they ought to have had. Just a little bit of an aside, when you combine that imagery, the imagery of them being trees without fruit, and when you combine that with Peter's language, that they would be individuals who would exploit people within the assembly. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. I imagine, so this is a little bit of an aside, I'm just combining images here. When you look at the imagery here, and 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, of those who would be in the assembly and exploit the assembly, I imagine walking by a tree that was bare with no fruit, but yet had the capacity to take from me or to take from you. That's like who these individuals are. You go to that tree and you're looking for fruit of some kind. It's a barren tree. There's no fruit there. But yet, it has the capacity, mixing metaphors, to take something from you. That's who these individuals were. But not only did they have no fruit, they were twice dead, pulled up by the roots. So in other words, they were really dead. (laughs) Twice dead. Not just like dead, but they were dead dead. Dead dead. Really dead. You get the language there, too. It speaks, I think, to the indefinite nature of their fruitlessness, seeing as they were pulled up by the roots. Remember, Jesus prophesied as such, just stated it like it is. Every plant, every tree that's not planted by my Father will be uprooted. And these ones are like trees that have already been uprooted, as it were. Looking at verse 13, and giving the time, we'll probably stop at verse 13 for today. Uh, They are like raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So Jude writes first here in verse 13, they are like raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Jude is perhaps forming a kind of comparison between the apostates of his day and the wicked that Isaiah spoke about in his day. In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 20, the prophet Isaiah wrote, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. So they're like the raging waves, and that could communicate their activity. could also communicate their restlessness, their unrestrained behavior, which only leads to foaming. Foaming. Well, they're not casting up mire and dirt like the metaphor in Isaiah 57 verse 20. What are they casting up? What are they foaming? They're foaming up their own shame. They're unremoved by the prospect of disgrace. They're unmoved by the prospect of dishonor. As they go about their own business, unrestrained, they continue to manifest shame, shameful behavior. One commentator noted the possibility And this is just a a possibility, a possible hypothesis. When you see that word shame used, you look at different contexts in which it's used, like Romans chapter 1, that sexual sin may be what's connoted here, but I don't think we need to limit it to that. They showed their shame and dishonor as they went about raging in their restlessness and their unrestrained behavior. And lastly, uh, Jude wrote that these men are like wandering stars, wandering stars, Now, there are a couple possibilities as to how this phrase could be rendered, wandering stars. It could simply be a reference to heavenly bodies. 
um, seeing as that the way it was, that's the way it was used in Greek literature. One commentator notes that. And you could go and read the commentators, and some say, well, I think planets are what are being spoken about here, or wandering stars, because you would expect stars to provide you with, given their, um, given their consistent orbit, a means of navigation. But these men were like wandering stars. What also may be connoted is that they were like shooting stars, or comets, or meteors, that they are ones who have no aim or purposeful destination. They are like shooting stars, as it were, that flash through the night sky until they vanish from a person's sight. And so reserved for these men is the blackness of darkness forever. In either case, you can see the erratic, inconsistent nature of these men. They are not ones to be followed or to be relied upon. They're like wandering stars. You can't use wandering stars for navigation. You don't expect stars to do that. They're like wandering stars. They go astray. They go into error. And ultimately, what is reserved for such ones is the blackness of darkness forever. This is the end of not only the apostate, this is the end of all who reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The blackness of darkness forever. It's a forever darkness It's not a cessation of existence, but an ongoing punishment. Jesus used this kind of language quite a bit. When you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus use this language over and over again. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus speaks about the place of outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You look when Jesus spoke about the parable of the talents, and we see that the unprofitable servant is cast into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When Jesus spoke the parable of the wedding feast, we see that that one who shouldn't have been there, who didn't have the wedding garment that he ought to have had on, that such one was to be bound, hand and foot, taken away and cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You can see that in Matthew 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 12, Matthew 22, verse 13, Matthew 25, verse 30. Outer darkness. Think about what's connoted in the outer darkness. So it's like the the furthest place away, as it were, from the light. It's the outer part of darkness. Now you mix that metaphoric imagery with the other language that connotes what the judgment to come is going to be like. The lake of fire, the place where the fire is not quenched, where the worm doesn't die, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus describes the place in such terms to say it's better to lose a limb here. It's better to have your eye plucked out here and to enter into life maimed or blind than to enter your whole body and soul into hell. This is serious. Now, I I know we could be concerned with what's going on temporally, and I think there's a place to be concerned with what's going on temporally, but I just want to remind everybody in this moment to be of the utmost concern. What is to be of the utmost concern is what is going to happen eternally. Everybody in this room, every single person in this room will be eternally somewhere. We can pretend like that's not true. We, we, we can try to make believe, like, ah, oh, like, let's just live in the here and now. Let's not worry about that until we get there. Jesus had told, has told us what there looks like. And the there that is reserved for his people is a beautiful there. Where there's the light of his presence, there's the glory of his presence forever. But the there that is not there, the outer darkness, is what is reserved not only for apostates, but for everyone who looks at the Son of God and says, I don't think he is the way, the truth, and the life. Who looks at God and says, God is a liar. Jesus Christ is not the only way to the Father. For such is reserved the blackness of darkness 
forever. Forever. And I want to exhort you. Why fade away from temporal life into eternal death when God has made a way through which eternal life could be had? Namely, through faith in the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. A believer can enjoy endless light, endless joy, endless peace. But what is reserved for those who reject Christ is endless darkness and endless punishment. I plead with you, dare not call Christ a liar. To deny that reality is to say, Jesus lied, but I know truth. It's to look at the one who is truth personified, truth embodied, and to say, people should not listen to him. They should listen to me. I know truth. He doesn't know truth. There is not reserved blackness of darkness forever for those who reject him. There is reserved life and peace even if they reject him. Why should somebody believe you when the Son of God has had his identity validated, as it were, through his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. I plead with you. I plead with you. Receive life. Only Christ, truly man and truly God, could satisfy the infinite price that we never could, thus absorbing, if you will, the darkness that we deserve so that we might live in the light of his countenance. Think of that. Look at that imagery. Instead of being reserved for the blackness of darkness forever, it's as though Christ absorbed the darkness, as it were. He absorbed the punishment that you and I deserve so that all who repent, all turn away from their sin and look to Him alone and believe the gospel could be rescued from darkness, can be made light, to use language from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, and for them is reserved the light of God's glory forever. One other note before we close. Jude has used this kind of language before in Jude, reserved. You look at the language that's used in verse 13, that for such ones is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. He used that kind of language in chapter 1, verse 6, to speak of those angels who are reserved or kept, could be translated like that, in everlasting chains. But he also used it in chapter 1, verse 1, to describe believers as those who are kept by, or you could say reserved for, Jesus Christ. You want to marvel at the grace of God? Instead of what you and I deserve, which is to have darkness forever reserved for us, God set us apart by His grace, opened our eyes to the gospel, so that we might be reserved for, have an inevitable reservation with, and our definitely kept by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that will bring us to verses 14 and 15, where Jude references a prophecy from Enoch. It's going to reinforce the reality of the judgment that awaits. And there's plenty more to come, but for today we will conclude there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you that when we look at ourselves... We know that in and of ourselves, Lord, we deserve your holy judgment. You're holier than we can imagine. You're so righteous. You are perfect light in whom there is no darkness. And we know that if you were to count iniquities, to number iniquities, no one would be able to stand in your presence. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. 
And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for the good shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep. He died so that we might live. He bore, as it were, the outer darkness. He bore the reproach outside of the camp. He bore the judgment that we deserve so that we forever might live. Father, I pray that in light of such truths, you will help us to go forth from this place today and by your grace to bear much fruit. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that your people are not late autumn trees without fruit, but by your grace, your people are not barren, but they are to be fruitful. So, Father, help us to walk in the appropriate fruitfulness that you've called us to. Help us, Heavenly Father, to be about your business, loving others and speaking truth in love. And thank you, Father, above all, thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would continue to protect us, Lord, whether it be from those who fall into the category of apostates from without, who would seek to influence those who are in this assembly, or those who would sneak to creep in, Heavenly Father, and do damage from the inside out. We are dependent upon you to protect us. So we pray that you would, and that you would continue to help us look less like ourselves in and of ourselves, and that you would help us to look more like our Lord and our Savior, who loved us and gave himself for us. It's in his name, in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.